Some music there from The Big Combo, the 1955 film noir. Welcome to the film show on KBOO. I'm SW Concer, and I'm joined once again today by celebrated film curator Elliot Levine, who has not one but two new courses in film history at Cinema 21. Elliot, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, we want to find out all about these new series that you're curating on Hollywood Before the Hayes Code and Film Noir in the 50s, and we'll be doing that in just a few minutes. But first, I'm joined by Lydia B. Smith. Lydia is a veteran documentarian whose short works include biographies, histories, educational films. Her first, I believe this is your first feature-length documentary, is airing on PBS this holiday season. It's called Walking the Camino, Six Ways to Santiago. In fact, I believe you can catch a screening this evening, Thursday, December 27th. We'll find out more in a moment. But uh, Lydia Smith, welcome to the film show. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you do have a screening coming up uh, this evening, and you also have uh, some uh, TV uh, screenings for people who just want to stay home tonight. Yes, we're playing on OPB Plus tonight at 9 p.m., and we are having a big airing party that's open to the public at the Selwood Public House. And for um, film film buffs, we have joined with the Portland Film Festival, and I'm doing a what we're calling an industry chat at about 6.15 at the Selwood Public House Great, before with, the airing. Uh, with our friend Josh Leak, maybe? Yes, okay. exactly. Okay, well, uh, before we talk about Walking the Camino, you spent uh, many years as a crew member on some interesting films, including Ed Wood and Dangerous Minds, uh, before finding your passion as a documentary director and producer. Uh, one of your early projects were, was called uh, their kid, they're, sorry, they're just kids, a film about children with disabilities. Yes, it was about essentially how ki- being around kids with disabilities can really enhance our lives. And there's really a lot we can learn and get from being around people that are different from us. You know, a lot of people in the arts are asked, where do you get your ideas? But, uh, you know, um, where, how, how do you stumble across your documentary subjects? Well, uh, one thing, um, there's a joke that uh, a lot of us documentarians make, which is don't make a documentary unless you have to. <laughs> and um, with that one in particular, it was my nephew um, who has special needs. And I just felt... I saw the challenges my stepsister was going through getting him included in classrooms and the fear that so many of the parents had about their children being around a child with special needs. And I was realizing, wow, he gives me so much and there's so much love coming from him. I know it's there's got to be a lot of benefits for the typical kids. And it was really quite it was so moving. I, there was one little girl in particular, super mousy, very kind of shy. And she said, well, I love being around Taylor because I get to be in charge. So for once, she got to be the leader. So, yeah. So most of my, uh, especially if I'm doing an independent, it really has to be something that I'm extremely passionate about because it's just too hard to otherwise. But I've worked on a lot where I've been hired Um, And luckily, they've all been things I've been really passionate about as well. Well, Walking the Camino started out as a personal pilgrimage. And in fact, you were reluctant to to make the film at first. Um, Tell us a little bit of background about the the, the Camino, about this. uh, It's it's a centuries-old pilgrimage. And in fact, um, uh, Martin Sheen put some uh, light on the subject for Americans, but it's been something that in Spain and in many parts of Europe 
has been uh, a longstanding uh, uh, activity for uh, a great period of time. Yes, it's a, essentially it started in the year 830, 840, when the remains of St. James were discovered. And the Pope at that time declared it an official pilgrimage. And so there was a real heyday in the Middle Ages in the 12th and 13th century. And it's speculated that upwards of maybe a million people a year were walking the Camino, coming from all over Europe to the city of Santiago de Compostela, where the remains of St. James were underneath the cathedral there. And then they kind of faded off, and then it kind of became very popular again starting about 25 years ago, and it's just gotten incrementally more and more popular. But nowadays, I'd say only about a quarter of the people that do it are Catholic, whereas obviously in the Middle Ages, everybody was. And there's about maybe 50% that are spiritual or Christian, and then another quarter that are just doing it for fun or for sport. Right, and it is a 500-mile walk yes. if you're doing the whole thing. So it's, uh, gosh, it's 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 almost uh, on the level of the Pacific uh, Crest Trail or well, something. Well, I think it's way easier. I haven't <laughs> done the PCT, but I can only imagine how much easier it is in that you don't have to carry a tent or your food. There's lodging and food, bars, restaurants every three to five miles. And uh, so you said yourself that you went off on this pilgrimage, and y y you it was wasn't until a year later that you felt called to make this film. Well, it was actually let's see, I walked in April May of two thousand and eight, and it was when I got home in September that this little voice just kept nagging at me that I really should do this documentary. And I resisted for quite a while, but finally I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. And then I went back exactly a year later. So then it was a big scramble to get the financing and the crew and went back in April, May um, of 2009, and we shot about 300 hours of footage. Yeah, and uh, you said that the financing that you got from, was it PBS, uh, it lasted basically for the shoot, and you had no money for editing. Well, actually, no, I didn't get any money from PBS. Um, I was able to finance the first part of the film. It's kind of a long story with my first boss, um, uh -huh. and then I had raised some money for a different documentary, and so I asked those donors if I could put it towards this one. So we had about 120000 for the shoot. And even that was a little short. Um, I had to borrow another 30000 to for the shoot because we had a crew of about, it ranged from 10 to 15 people, kind of depending on what was happening for 30 days. And even though we were only paying everybody $100 a day, it, it sure adds up. And then it was once I got home that I needed to raise all the money for the edit which clearly with 300 hours is was a significant edit and so that took me four years 300 hours and you had a cast so to speak of six the film is called walking the camino six ways to santiago uh tell us about these six people that uh that that you happened upon in so many ways and at so many times yeah well of the six that you see in the um on the pbs version so this we have two versions we have the theatrical version which is available for rent or sale on our website which is camino documentary or the pbs version is a 56 46 uh, 56 minute version so it, we did have to cut out one of our characters um, but we still are featuring six, so we still kept it as <coughs> six ways to Santiago. So of our six characters, only one of them um, 
I knew beforehand. And that's Annie, who's the American. She goes to the same spiritual center I used to go to in LA. And when she heard I was doing this documentary, she was like, oh, I want to be involved. I want to, I want to do it. And I realized what was really important was, well, first, I needed somebody to film on the first day, obviously. And then second, I I knew I needed someone that I could trust would be 100% open and vulnerable with their feelings and really let us on, let us in on what was going on inside her instead of just the shell of like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. And so Annie really had a lot of courage and was very, very vulnerable emotionally and really kind of was um, – that takes a lot of courage. And give us a quick rundown of the rest of the folks who appear in the film. So um, they then we have Tomas is from Portugal, and he was in between jobs. And his whole thing was he was either going to go kite surfing or walk the Camino. And he kind of made the decision a couple of days beforehand. And he just was doing it to see if he could he could walk 500 miles and it was for him also another great way to get to know Spain then we had um Tatiana and um Syrian she's a French woman in her 30s and she was walking with her three-year-old and this was one of those cases where I I was really leaving it up to the Camino to cast the movie to show me who was meant to be in the film and Tatiana we kept running into and we actually met her the first time even before we started shooting and so um so that was clear and then we have Sam who is half Brazilian half British and she was just lost she had um she had broken up with her boyfriend. She had been fired from her job. She literally got a one-way ticket to Spain and just was like not sure what to do or where to go. And so she was really looking for some big answers on the Camino. And then we have uh, Jack and Wayne, who are two older Canadian gentlemen. Uh, Jack was our oldest pilgrim at age 73. So it ranges from three to 73. And this, you know, this film is about the changes that happen along the way, but it changed you too. You are, these days, you are a licensed spiritual practitioner uh, at the Agape International Spiritual Center. And uh, yeah, so this, this, this film continues to affect uh, you and the people around you, and apparently many of the people who have watched it. You've heard many stories. Yeah, it's quite a transformational experience. And there's a saying that we have, which is, your real Camino starts when you get home. And that was the case for me because I've spent all my life, working life in the film business, generally supporting other people's visions and other people's dreams. And, you know, I was a great producer and I, you know, you need an elephant here tomorrow. Okay, I got it. Um, But it was a real leap for me to say, this is what I think is important and I value this and there will be a market for this. And at the same time, it was like jumping off a cliff for five years, not knowing if people were going to like it, if there was going to be interest in the film. And it just was very synchronistic that Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez actually filmed. They actually filmed right after me. They were supposed (laughs) to film at the same time. And um, I actually sent them our, we put together a little 20-minute trailer to give people an idea of the characters and themes that we were going to be addressing. And I sent it to Martin because I'd been talking with these guys. And they ended up using it to train their actors. And wow. Because 
none of those guys had had ever walked so it gave them a really good idea of what the Camino was like. So are you and Mar- Martin Sheen besties now? <laughs> I wouldn't say besties, but he's been very supportive. They did a screening of The Way back in D.C. and before it came out in theaters, and I went to ask a question, and they know me by voice, but not. So I was like, oh, it's Lydia from the Camino <laughs> documentary, and Martin just went off about how great my documentary was and how I was raising money, and if anybody had a sack of money, they could they should give it to us. And <laughs> Uh, we have it on on YouTube and on our website, but it was it was incredibly sweet to do yeah. that at your own premiere to focus on somebody else's project. Well, it's amazing, uh, Lydia. I know you have to go and prepare for an event of your own this evening, but uh, tell us how people can find out more about this film, Walking the Camino: Six Ways to Santiago. They um, we have a website which is CaminoDocumentary.org, and also a Facebook page which is also Camino Documentary. And we, our event is tonight um, with two events, the first being the industry chat with Portland Film Festival. Uh, doors open at 5.30 and then our OPB Plus airing, which is at uh, 9 p.m. tonight. Thanks so much, Lydia. Uh, you are listening to The Film Show on KBU. I'm SW Concert. And we've been talking with filmmaker Lydia B. Smith. And now we have a clip to play for you. It's from the 1933 film Babyface, and it's playing as part of the Putting the Sin in Cinema Hollywood Before the Code series at Cinema 21. Say, I like it here. How about a job? Well, we don't... Oh, now, don't tell me in this great big building there ain't some place for me. Have you had any experience? Plenty. I'd rather wait in there. I hate crowds. Don't you? The boss won't be back for an hour. Well, then why don't we go in and talk this over? And now we are joined uh, once again by Elliot Levine. Elliot is a film historian with two new screening series. Uh, One of them is called Film Noir in the 50s, The Glamour and the Grit. The other is Putting the Sin in Cinema, Hollywood Before the Code. Elliot, great to have you back in the studio. Thank you, Conch. It's great to be here. So let's talk about the code in the title of this one series. This was the Hayes Code, and there's a bit of a twisty history to how it, it came about. Um, yeah, I mean, there were some scandals in Hollywood in the 20s, uh, some celebrity scandals, and there were complaints about uh, the content of some of these gritty films. Well, it was getting pretty hairy. Uh, there, was, there was a code. The, the code actually came about... In 1930, mm-hmm. and it wasn't uh, really produced, enforced at first, though. Right? It was, I would say, scantily enforced, <laughs> uh, to coin a phrase. Uh, but what essentially uh, it was there as a kind of a, 
uh, to hold a page uh, because nobody was really taking it very seriously. I think the attitude of writers and directors was, well, like, wh whatever, you know, it's, you know, yeah, we're just going to keep making our movies like the way we are until somebody actually tells us we can't. And nobody was telling anybody that what they could or could not do. Certain things, obviously, you could not do. Certain uh, displays of sexuality, you couldn't show nudity. You, there are a lot of things you could not do. But given the things that you could do uh, under very loose guidelines, Hollywood is having a field day with promiscuity and violence and all the things that really kind of drove that engine. And in part, I think it was because if you look at it, I mean, this is the Depression, and I don't think there could be a grittier, uh, more hard-scrabble existence for people uh, anywhere. And I think people, a certain segment of the population, really wanted their entertainment to reflect that, to say, well, we live in hard times, and let's, let's not sugarcoat things. So even today, all these years later, when people reference 30s movies, the inclination is, oh, Mickey Rooney and Shirley Temple, and please, I just can't tolerate that. But the reality is there was a brief window of time for three, three and a half years there, the very early 30s, where there were no holds barred. And that's the period, uh, say 1930 to 33, that we're dealing with this in this course. This is a group of films that have sort of become known as pre-code films. It, it almost sounds like a genre unto itself, although it's not quite, uh, but it does sort of um, signify uh, and probably one of the most exciting periods in Hollywood history. Yeah, the um, the early 30s, of course, this was when sound uh, films, talkies, talkies, were coming under their own. The technology was improving. And, uh, you know, one of the w w one of the upshots of that was there was a lot of uh, a lot of stories about progressive issues, about uh, their feminist characters coming in. And it was so much easier to connect with the audience. At the same time, you know, you had uh, much more of this direct experience with the sound. And so people were uh, and, and so and, and so people could get a little bit more offended more easily. <laughs> Very easily. Than, uh, and they did writers, the silent actually, days, yeah. Yeah, it gave writers a much larger role in what was going on. Uh, previously, writers were basically writing, you know, the title cards and uh, in between shots and the films. But now they were, the films were called upon to take on more serious subject matter. So as you mentioned, uh, some of the early 30s films were tackling social issues in ways that would be you know, uh, very casually swept under the carpet a few years ago, simply because it, there was a tendency for these films to get people's blood boiling. Uh, <laughs> and then when it entered into a more personal framework, say sexuality, personal behavior, violence, these sort of things that were products of everyday life, but not necessarily things that people enjoyed thinking about, but yet they were getting them in massive doses in these films. One of the films we're seeing is Scarface, the original uh, gangster film uh, from Howard Hawks. And it's probably, it was so problematic in terms of what the censors were dealing with that it took them about two years to clear it all up so they could actually get it on the screen. That's how raw this film was. And the version that we're left with is still pretty sensational by, uh, by any standards, uh, whether early 30s or late 30s. It's a tough, tough film um, with the suggestions of all sorts of lewd behavior, uh, brothers and sisters getting a little too close, if you get my drift, and wanton violence. I mean, it was a, it was a customary sort of pr um, presentation of information for 1932, but by 1934, 
the idea of seeing a film like Scarface was completely non-existent. The the shift was so dramatic. Um, in a film like Babyface from 33 yeah. that you started the, the show off, uh, that was, a, a lot of people feel that was the film that broke the camel's back. That film was kind of like a, a reference book of pre-code do's and don'ts. And I mean, it, it has it all. <laughs> and uh, I think by that point, uh, theater owners were being deluged or deluged, I guess is the word, um, by more conservative people, you know, who were coming to the movies and said, you know, I don't know if I want to take little Johnny and little Judy to see something quite like this. And an enormous amount of pressure was put on theaters, not necessarily on the East Coast or the West Coast, where the audiences were somewhat more sophisticated, but through the whole other region of America, the Midwest and the South, where attitudes toward this were a little bit, you know, more conventional. Well, the um, the Hayes Code was named after the Postmaster General, uh, who who uh, who the studios actually adopted this to head off government censorship. Right, and uh, <laughs> and so you know some of the rules were well, crime doesn't pay. There's uh, certain things you can't show. Right, um, and and uh, it persisted until uh, in, until after World War II when the when the Supreme Court overturned that. Uh, uh, well, they did somewhat, but uh, but the lingering effects of the censorship that that the Hayes Code reflected. Uh, was really still being felt until the early 60s. And it wasn't really until the mid-60s when Hollywood developed uh, the nerve, really, to just break those shackles and say, you know what, we're getting to a point you know, in our society where people should be able to embrace reality a little bit more actively than what Hollywood was giving them. But back in the early 30s, it was really the low-budget studios that didn't have the, the spectacle and the sets and the stars and everything that were putting out these these gritty uh, street-level dramas. And uh, so how did, they, how did they adapt when the Hayes Code came into effect? Uh, well, some of them didn't. Uh, you're talking about some of the smaller studios that yeah. were just... Well, Warner Brothers is a standout. Well, of course, they, Brothers, they, they continue. Warner's was probably the king of the pre-code film. Uh -huh. So, um, which is not to say that the other big studios weren't engaged in this sort of thing, because they were. Uh, even Paramount, which was a studio that was sort of steeped in tradition and opulence, they were making their fair, uh, fair share of films that were considered, uh, by certain standards, to be pretty lewd and lascivious. So it was a, a problem that was sort of a sweeping problem. It affected all the major studios. Some of them did better than others because they adjusted more quickly. Uh, Warner Brothers, for example, they just figured, well, we can't stop making gritty melodramas because that's what we do. Um, so what they did, they just sort of, they diminished the violence, they diminished the sexuality, and what they were still left with, fortunately, because these actors had such dynamic personalities you so you're still watching a Humphrey Bogart movie or a Jimmy Cagney movie but without the adornment that made it really a startling pre-code film. One of the films we'll be watching, or, it, and, and, and you know, or the bad guys will get shot or go to jail at the end. Right. There will be some comeuppance. Right. Um, one of the big bugaboos about the code was that crime pictures were um, uh, representing criminals as sort of Robin Hood figures, heroes that you know kids in a depressed economy are looking at. And say, this guy's taking what he wants. Maybe I should too. You know, maybe that's the methodology behind surviving the depression. And then, of course, you know, for people who are um, uh, given the, the job of being a watchdog uh, over societal issues that are coming out of uh, Hollywood, that was a, a major undertaking because everything had to be revamped. And they had to do it overnight, literally, from, say, 
um, March 1934 to April 1934, it was kind of like the earth shifted on its axis as far as Hollywood is, was concerned. And a lot of films had to just be stopped in the middle of production because they know they knew at the time they'd never be able to release them. So they had to bring them back, reshoot scenes, sanitize them, and make them acceptable for, for the critics. Well, let's talk about your other series that's going to be happening sure. at Cinema 21. It's called Film Noir in the 50s, The Glamour and the Grit. And these films were released after after the Hays Code was overturned, but while, well, they helped pave the way for later later films that were more... Uh, adult, the, you might uh, say. More adult, <laughs> and they were unappreciated at their time. It wasn't until the 60s and 70s that film critics, especially overseas, appreciated appreciated film noir for for what it was. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Although, um, by simply saying that the code wasn't there, the code was definitely there all through the 50s. But uh, fortunately, most of the the films that we now uh, categorize as film noir were made um, by studios who didn't have the same sort of relationship to the to the code. If you were with, if you ha, if you were MGM and you were producing the new Clark Gable film, there's going to be a crew of people down there from the Hayes office to make sure that every little thing is just right. But if you're making a little B picture on some soundstage in 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 uh, Gower Gulch, nobody's <laughs> standing over your shoulder, so you could get away with a lot more. Which is why, in retrospect, when you're looking at films from certain periods and you're looking at films from the early '50s, even the mid '50s, you see, wow, how'd they get away with that? Even though it's laden with innuendos, but the innuendos are so thin that you can see right through them. I mean, there's it's it's actually a lot of fun because these films, the films that you might not be immediately familiar with, simply because they acquired a reputation of being disreputable um, are actually a lot more reflective of a hardcore uh, societal reality than the, the the glossy melodramas that were produ- being produced at the same time and, and with much be- larger budgets. And you believe that these movies have messages for us now in the 21st century? Oh, well, my, yeah, more than ever. I mean, I think when we're dealing with um, themes that uh, deal with corruption, whether it's in law enforcement or government, what that strikes a very a resonating bell with a lot of people. And uh, to see behavior uh, portrayed in these films as uh, really callous, insensitive behavior, well, that's got to ring a certain type of bell as well. And I think audiences, well, film noir has been sort of a, a thing for people for quite some time now. And I think it's really easy to reapply certain subtexts to what you're seeing on the screen, to what's actually happening uh, either in your own life in 2018 or what you might be seeing on the news in 2018 well these are two film two screening series at cinema 21 there right. i think uh, they're 10 uh 10 so, weeks each each yeah. class is 10 weeks the pre-code class will meet every tuesday morning at 11 at cinema 21 starting in january uh january 8th is the uh, the starting date on that the film noir in the 50s uh is also 10 weeks that starts um, that'll be every Saturday starting in January 12th. And people can sign up for these. They can sign up. It's open to the public, even though it's being offered by OSU. Oregon State University. Yes. Oregon State. It's uh, their continuing studies program. So it's, it's really available to anybody and everybody. And uh, hopefully anybody and everybody will sign up. <laughs> and you can look it up at Cinema 21, too. Well, thank you very much, Elliot Levine, for joining us today to talk about your two screening series, Film Noir in the 50s, The Glamour and the Grit, and Putting the Sin in Cinema, Hollywood Before the Code.
Uh, well, that just about wraps it up for this month's edition of The Film Show on KBU. I'm S.W. Concer. Thanks again to our guests today, Lydia B. Smith and Elliot Levine. Thanks also to the Oregon Media Production Association for their support and collaboration. And thanks also to the listeners on the radio dial and on the web. The audio for the show will be available later today on our archive page, kboo.fm slash thefilmshow. And you can keep up with us on Twitter at KBOO Film Show. Now stay tuned for an afternoon of music on your homegrown Portland radio station. The time is 12 o'clock. You're listening to KBOO Portland.